0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and his church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Have you ever wanted to be someone else or be like someone else? Maybe you saw a particular characteristic that someone had, a way they acted, a mannerism, a way they wore their hair, a way they dressed, or maybe a skill that they had. And he thought, I'd like to be like that person. When I was thinking about that idea uh, this week, I thought of my time as a child. And like most kids, the first person I wanted to be like was my parents. And so I would try to be like my dad because I thought that's what an adult was like. And so I would try to put on his clothes or put on his shoes and walk around the house and do my best not to fall on my face. But in my mind, I was being like an adult. Or even one of the more vivid memories I have is my dad, growing up, was a big coffee drinker. I'm talking the half a pot to a pot of day of Folgers as he would work on our farm. Thankfully, he's cut back and has gotten a little bit better taste in coffee. But I can remember associating that with my dad, and one morning I wanted to be so much like an adult and so much like him that I went downstairs, grabbed a coffee cup, poured either milk or juice or soda because I wanted to have the same color of coffee, I wasn't going to drink coffee because that stuff was disgusting to me as a kid. But I sat down at the table with my cereal and my coffee cup. Now, after you get over the humor of that situation, if you knew my dad, you could probably begin to see that I was imitating him. You could see his influence, his mark on my life, and even a simple act of drinking something out of a coffee cup. This morning, we're going to look at a story where the church sounds and acts and looks a lot like Christ, where they imitate him in the actions of Peter and John. So you'll find this in Acts chapter 3. It's on page, Jack? Page page 8 and 9. It's a joke that Scott usually does too. So 8 and 9 of our bulletins. And we're going to look at this story of an encounter that Peter and John have at the temple. Now, before we get into this story, it's helpful to know a little bit of where we've been so far in the book of Acts. We began on Ascension Sunday a few weeks ago, where the disciples asked the question to Jesus, we've seen you defeat sin and death. What's next? What do we do now? And Jesus, he leaves them. He goes into heaven, but he promises them as he leaves and says, I will send my spirit among you, and you will be my witnesses. You will continue on the mission Of the church. And so then the next Sunday, on Pentecost Sunday, we looked at Acts chapter 2, where this actually happens. The Holy Spirit descends on the disciples, and they're given the power to proclaim the gospel. And they go into Jerusalem, and they begin to speak Christ's message to a whole group of Jews from all over the world. And God does amazing acts of wonder and power, and people come in droves to the faith, and the church is born. And at the end of that chapter, we see a community that we actually talked about a few weeks ago of one that is committed to the teaching of the Bible, that one is committed to the fellowship together, but also one that is full of the Spirit, that does amazing wonders as they preach and teach about the kingdom of God. And so in Acts chapter 3, we actually get our first church story. And we see what this looks like. The story opens with a typical event at the temple. Peter and John are walking up for the hour of prayer, and a man lame from birth is laid down at the gate. And he's asking people as they come in for some kind of money, for something so he can survive. And our story begins in this ordinary moment when Peter, seeing the man, directed his gaze at him in verse four. And as did John, and said, look at us. And the lame man fixes his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now I, I focus here because it's interesting the way this narrative happens. We begin with this ordinary event, an event that happens day by day, where this lame man has probably sat at the gate his entire life asking for alms. And here comes Peter and John. They see him and they engage with him. It's not a passive walking by. It's not a simple greeting They engage in conversation with this man. They enter into an active, permanent disability like this. Well, if you know anything about the ancient world, permanent disability like this carries with it a strong stigma. This man has no social standing. There is no American Disabilities Act in the ancient world, and so he can't do a whole lot. In fact, in the eyes of the Roman world, he's probably viewed as useless to society and so he does what he can and he's carried to the temple and then left there hoping he can get enough to survive but even more than just the ancient world we also see that in Judaism of the first century for this man to be lame from birth something's got to be wrong here either his parents sinned or somehow he sinned we see this in John chapter 9 when they bring a blind man to Jesus they ask him whose sin whose fault is this why is this man blind from birth And so for this lame man, he probably carries with with him a stigma that he's done something or there's some kind of uncleanliness about him. He is the lowest of the low. And yet Peter and John, of all the people entering the temple, they notice him, they fix their gaze on him, and they enter into a conversation. Now, if you've been with us for a while or you've studied the gospel or read the gospel, this should sound pretty familiar. It's exactly what Jesus does throughout all of our Gospels. He finds individuals who are the social lowlifes, the cast-outs of society, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the lepers, tax collectors, prostitutes. He engages with them and gives them dignity and makes his community a welcome place for all. And so we see in these few verses our first way that the church imitates Christ. They imitate him through their compassion. Peter and John, as they're walking in, they see this man, and they show compassion on him. But the story doesn't end there. They continue on in their conversation, and we see that they imitate Christ now in his power. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold. This is verse 6. But what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the crowds, they see this, and they're filled with wonder at what has just happened because they know they've seen this man. And here he stands, Walking, not just walking, but leaping and shouting in their midst. Now again, if you've read the Gospels or maybe were paying attention about five, ten minutes ago, this should again sound familiar. The story that Charlie read from Luke chapter 5, where Jesus, he encounters a paralytic man that is lowered through the ceiling. Which, by the way, as a side note, wouldn't you have loved to have been either a fly on the wall or a a person in that room to see the reaction of people's faces as the roof is... Broken in, and a man is lowered. I'm sure it was wild. But Jesus, he's unfazed, he engages with the man, and he tells him to get up and walk. And he heals him by this word of power, and people are amazed. And so we see that just like Jesus, now his church is doing the same thing. Now, why is this a big deal? Why why is this important? it shows continuity between Jesus and now the life of the church. You see, when Jesus ascended, the question was, what's going to happen next? Are you leaving us? You can imagine the disciples wondering, Jesus has left. What do we do now? And here we see that the Spirit is doing the exact same thing in the life of the church. Now, for Christians throughout history, this has been a Wonderful sign of encouragement because we're not alone. The Holy Spirit, just as He worked in the mission of Jesus and the Gospels, is continuing to work in the church in Acts and continues to work today. So we see that the church imitates Christ in its compassion and in its power and dependence on the Holy Spirit. So having healed the man that entered the temple, And Peter, like any good preacher, takes the moment to deliver a message. He sees the people's amazement at what's going on, and he takes this moment to deliver a message of hope about the gospel. And so we see here again that as the church has imitated Christ in its compassion and in its power, it now imitates Christ in its message. Now, over this sermon, I wish we could get Really into this. Um, unfortunately, it would take hours upon hours. There's so much here in this message that Peter gives, but I wanted to highlight a few things that Peter does in this sermon. The first is that throughout this passage, we see that he consistently affirms who Jesus is. He says, This man was healed by the name of Jesus Christ. This is the one who God has glorified, he's God's servant. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the Messiah. Throughout this sermon, Peter is consistently proclaiming, this Jesus is the one who's done this. It wasn't us. It wasn't our power or our gifts or abilities. It was the power of Jesus Christ. And then second, he confronts his audience for their rejection of Christ in the past. We find this in the midst of all of this this passage about acclaiming who Jesus is. We see in verses 13... To 15, Peter seemingly go after his audience. You notice you delivered him over. You denied him. You asked for a murder to be granted for you, and you killed the author of life. He's confronting his audience directly for their own previous interactions with Christ. Now, I, I want to be clear here because this passage has been used like a lot of texts in the New Testament to justify a lot of awful things in church history, specifically directed at those of Jewish ethnic descent. While Peter is pointing out their rejection, he's not necessarily blaming them for the crucifixion. How can I say that? Well, Peter himself points out a few things. First, in verse 18, the crucifixion didn't surprise Jesus. It didn't surprise God. In fact, it had been planned From the very beginning, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. This has been the plan from day one that Christ would come down, that he would die for the sins of many. Peter also points out that this was done in ignorance in verse 17. I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. He recognizes that they didn't recognize who Jesus was, they didn't know, they didn't recognize that he was who he said he was, the Messiah. And while this isn't an excuse, it's an opening for grace. It's an act that can be reversed. And this is what happens in the rest of the sermon. And Peter turns now to give them a chance to repent and come to Jesus. Now, before we get to that, I, one of the things that floored me about what Peter does here in this sermon is that this isn't just this audience's story notice in verse 14 he says that but you deny the holy and righteous one now in Greek this verb here is the Greek verb arneomai and it's used throughout the New Testament of the idea of denying Jesus but it's only used in the gospels for one other character it's not Judas it's not the Israelite audience it's Peter he's the very same one the man speaking this sermon also denied Christ. And what's worse is he knew who Christ was. It wasn't done in ignorance. We see in all of the Gospels, Peter consistently confesses at one moment or another that you are the Christ. And yet at the moment of trial, at when, when the cards were down, Peter rejected Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. But the story mercifully doesn't end there. We talked about it a few weeks ago in John chapter 21 where on the Sea of Galilee Jesus encounters Peter after his resurrection. And he asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter responds every time, Lord, you know that I love you. And what does Jesus do? He commissions him three times to feed my sheep, to preach the gospel. And so Peter can confront the audience but he can also remind them that this is a story of grace because this is his story as well but it's not just his story it's also our story at various points in our lives each of us has rejected Christ by our words by our actions but there's grace and a chance to turn back And so Peter introduces this grace to them. He says in verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back from your sins that they may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, one of the things I love about this sermon, and I have been geeking out about this for the past few weeks, it's been fascinating to study that as Peter talks to them, it is dripping with images from the Hebrew Bible. If I had to describe Peter's sermon in one phrase, I would call it a best-of album with some of the greatest hits of Hebrew Bible eschatology. For those of you who don't know what that term means, basically that this, is the best, this is the greatest hits of the promises that God will come and restore as he's promised he would do. To give you some examples, in verses 13 and 18, Peter talks about the idea of Christ as the servant of God, and then in 18 talks about how that servant Would suffer and die. Here, Peter's referencing Isaiah 52 to 53, the idea of the suffering servant that would come and restore Israel through his gift, through his sacrifice. In verse 22, Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18 and brings up this idea of the prophet like Moses. And in the first century, this was a huge deal. This was a passage that was taken by multiple Jewish groups that one day God would send a deliverer who would come and restore them. And Peter even goes beyond all of this and at the end of the sermon in 25 and 26, he ties all of this back to the covenant of Abraham. Going back to the very foundation of his audience's faith and saying this has been the plan since day one. Jesus is the answer. As someone told me once we were talking about this passage, the prophetic moment is here and the covenant has come to roost. Now, For us, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of Hebrew Bible. There's a lot of promises and prophetic words. Why does this matter to this audience? As Peter is dropping hints left and right and bombs from the Hebrew Bible, alarm bells for his audience are going off. See, because they've been steeped in these promises their whole lives and their ancestors' lives for 600 years, they've been hoping that someone would come and deliver them. And over these six centuries, they've experienced all the way to Rome exile and domination by foreign powers from Babylon all the way to Rome. And all through that time, they've been hoping and longing that God would come and do what he promised. And they've seen Messiah after Messiah come up and say, I'm it, I'm the answer. And every time that Messiah was either killed or executed, and his followers were decimated. And the revolution and the the Messiah would fail. So you can imagine their situation, hoping for so long and wondering, will God actually act? And here is this Galilean fisherman standing in the temple, talking about a guy that died a few weeks ago. And you can probably step into their situation, wondering, okay, this again, we've heard this all before. This this can't be real. And yet in front of them is this lame man that they have seen walk. They've seen the spirit move in their very presence and they see this man who's been restored, not just walking, but leaping and praising God. Maybe, just maybe, God is doing what he promised. And this vision that Timothy read in Isaiah 35 will finally come true. Now, the fascinating thing is that this audience, they were probably expecting something else. And yet, much like the lame man at the beginning of the story, they're about to have their minds blown. Now, I've been thinking about ways that I can help us step into this longing, ways to illustrate this. And maybe it was a time, my time at Wheaton as a, as a student there that my f- mind immediately went to C.S. Lewis. And in his Line the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've read the story or seen a movie or know anything about the book, you know that when the children first enter Narnia, the whole kingdom is under the power of the White Witch. And they're trapped in perpetual winter, where it is always winter, but never Christmas. Now, as a Wisconsinite, um, I, I get a little bit of this. Um, I'm not originally from Wisconsin, but I've now lived up here for three years. i spent two years in Chicago. I feel like I understand what winter, at least part of what winter is. And every year, about April or March, I get this longing that the snow would melt, I would see some grass, and that the sun would shine. I think this year especially, it hit me in late January, um, after the days of 20 below. But you can imagine the way the residents of Narnia feel. They long for winter to be over and to have freedom from the White Witch. And throughout the story, we begin to hear rumors that the character's hear that Aslan is on the move, that deliverance is coming, and that winter will soon be over. And I think that's a little bit what's going on here. Now, obviously, C.S. Lewis is a theologian. He knows what he's quoting here. He's getting at this longing that people feel that God would come and do what he said he would do. Now, I say that this longing, it, it's maybe hard for us to grasp in first century terms, but this is our longing as well. You can easily pull out your phone and look at the news and see violence and destruction and natural disaster, and you can see just ways that this world is broken. Or maybe you don't even have to look that far. You can see in your own life suffering and oppression, disease, disease, struggles, financial, whatever. You, you, you can see that the world just isn't the way it's supposed to be. Something is wrong. We read promises like Isaiah 35. We read promises like this in the message of Peter that times of refreshing are coming. So we wonder, can this still happen? Is Christ our hope for a broken world? The story continues in Acts chapter four, and we didn't have it read today because it would add a lot more verses, and I think Nicole, she wonderfully read Acts chapter three, but I wonder if it would have been too much. But we see that after this event, there's a hubbub going around Jerusalem, and religious leaders, they hear about it, and they arrest Peter and John and take them before the Sanhedrin, and they begin to threaten them that they shouldn't preach anymore. But while this is happening, the author of Acts drops a couple of notes that I think are interesting for us today. The first is in Acts 4, verse 4, where it says that after all this had happened, many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. So we see that as the Spirit is working through the disciples, the church is exploding. Now there's some debate about whether this is, it's now three, to 5,000, or whether it's 5,000 new members. In any case, the church is growing exponentially. Because they sound and act and look like Jesus, Jesus is working through them in his spirit and is bringing people to this new kingdom movement. The other fascinating thing about this passage is that when Peter and John, when they go before the Sanhedrin and they're threatened saying, don't talk about this anymore, Peter answers with boldness and says, look, we have to obey God and not you because we have the message of life, of salvation. And in verse 13, the Sanhedrin, they see the boldness of Peter and John, astonished. These men shouldn't have educated, common men, and they were astonished. These men shouldn't have this ability. These men shouldn't be able to speak with this authority. They're illiterate and they're common and they don't have eloquent ability. But what? They recognized they had been with Jesus. The marks of Christ are all over them. They can see that they are imitating Christ and the Spirit is working through them to do immeasurably wonderful things and bring this gospel to the ends of the earth. So how do we take a narrative like this and apply it? What do we do? I think whenever I come to narratives like this, it's sometimes helpful for me to imagine myself as the characters in the story, to put myself in their situation. Maybe today you're new to this whole thing. You're not a Christ follower. Maybe you're here for the first time or the second or third time, and you're just curious. You're checking it out. You're wondering what this whole movement, why do people come on a Sunday morning into a hot gym, eat bread and, and wine or grape juice, and celebrate together as a community. What is this all about? Well, I think, like the audience and the story, this message is for you. Maybe you've seen the brokenness of the world. You've seen the suffering around you and in your own life, and you wonder, is this all there is? Surely there's got to be something more. Surely there has to be something that will set this right. And friend, the invitation that Peter offered for these people to repent and turn back to Jesus and experience times of refreshing, this invitation is to you as well. So this morning, I don't know where you are, and if something about what Peter has said, as you look over these words, as you hear these words, it, it's affecting you in some way. We're going to have a time later during our communion we have prayer ministers in the back, and I encourage you to go talk to one of them, and they can pray with you and tell you more about this Jesus that we follow. Now, for the church, for those of us who've been here for a while, this passage is also a challenge to us. Because just like Peter and John are called to imitate Christ in their their actions, so also are we. We're called to imitate Christ in our compassion. How do we interact with those our world would deem as social outcasts? Do we pass by? Or do we engage with them in the dignity of their humanity? Oh, Christ Church, would that we become a place where all are welcome, that everyone can come and experience the joy and refreshing of Jesus Christ. Second, we are called to imitate Christ and his message. Much like Peter, we are called to affirm who Jesus is, and proclaim that he is who he said he was. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the one that is going to bring times of refreshing. We're called to confront when necessary. But always that confrontation is followed immediately and is saturated with grace and mercy. Because just like Peter, this is our story. And then finally, I put this one at the end because it is the one that I have struggled with over the past month preparing this sermon. I have so many questions about how we as a church are called to imitate Christ and his power. Because I am very much a product of Western, enlightened, whatever you want to call it, civilization. I come from a house full of medical professionals. I'm a graduate student at a very humanistic university in UW-Madison, and I come from a denomination originally where the Holy Spirit was barely mentioned at all. And so I come to passages like this, and I see Christ working. And I wonder, can this really happen? What does this actually look like? Does Christ still work wonders like this among his people today? And so my prayer for us, Christ Church, that we can be a place where God does this. That we can surrender to the Holy Spirit and experience transformation of lives, both physical, mental, spiritual, whatever God would have us do, that we will experience this power in the way that Christ would use us. And so, Christ Church, this morning, as we look at this passage, my prayer is that when people see us, they'll recognize that this church shouldn't be able to do what it's doing. This church shouldn't be proclaiming or acting like it is, but they'll recognize and be amazed because they'll recognize that we have been with Jesus. Father, thank you so much for this word and your message. Lord, shape us into your image. Shape us into the people you would have us to be, that we can serve Madison and our world and be a place of hope for all people. Your name, I pray. Amen.